have 10 extra minutes built in to the preaching time today, and I'd like to use that. Uh, I heard a story the other day about a, a, a preacher who asked, uh, could I have five more minutes to preach today? And uh, he said, in fact, let me just see a show of hands. Who will give me five more minutes to preach? And in the audience, you know, four, five, six hands went up. He said, thank you very much. And he began counting. That's 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. <laughs> I'm not going to do that today. Uh, but uh, this is a very interesting uh, section of Scripture that we have from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, you'll probably want to lay your eyes on this, and I'll mention a few more passages of Scripture that you may want to turn to, or at least mark down. Uh, the words to the main Scripture will be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can look there. And if you don't have a Bible in your life, we don't want anyone leaving here today without a good, reliable copy of God's Word just for you. And so take that with you, if you will. They're on the table in the back. You can't miss them laid out there for you. And we want you to have that no cost to you just a gift from the heart of our church uh, to you. And so that's, that's yours if you need it. This is uh, in the series of the seven letters to the churches of Revelation or the churches of Asia Minor uh, that are written for us in the book of the Revelation. Uh, the apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos. Uh, he's been exiled there for his faith, for naming the name of Christ, for living out that testimony. The Isle of Patmos was a rocky, uh, almost a, a slave prisoner colony where they busted up rock all the time. And he was out there uh, on that colony and he saw a vision given to him personally by the Lord Jesus. And the Lord told him, write down the things that you see. And if you think about the book of Revelation, it is uh, in some ways a dark book. We can look at this message as foreboding and, and, and heavy, but it was meant to be an encouragement to first century believers, an encouragement to you and me that in the end, Jesus has the victory. And not only is Jesus victor, he shares the victory. Those of us who follow him, whose lives are hidden in Christ, those whose faith and trust are planted there, we find that we share in ultimate victory. Why is that an encouragement? Because things are sometimes hard. And for the first century church, they were hard, not only because of the life things that we face, but they were hard for them because the world was crushing in on them in persecution. They hated them. Uh, and that their lives were made to be hard because they were Christians. And add to that the normal calamities and add to that the normal losses and the hardships, that the, just the, the, the lung-aching pain that sometimes grips you and me. And the, the word from Revelation is a word of encouragement. Whatever we suffer here, whatever this world brings, listen, there's going to be victory and redemption in the end. Things are going to be made full and right again. Every tear, as we just sang, will be wiped away, and that will be no more in the presence of the victorious Lord Jesus. And so we come today to the sixth, six of seven churches that we've been studying. And last week, we looked at a church that had no positives. The Lord Jesus had nothing good to say about them, and immediately we flipped the page and come to a church 
that he had no criticism of, no judgments of. And the church is in the city of Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, they don't have a baseball team, but they, they do have a church in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love in ancient Asia Minor. And this church is crowned faithful. And so let's look together at this passage and then let's talk about what makes this church uh, so good. How did they earn this praise, this commendation from the Lord Jesus? We'll examine that together in three points. Verse 7, and the angel, and to the angel, again, we see that that could mean messenger. It could mean the pastor or the elder of that church. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. This is one of my favorite uh, descriptions of the Lord Jesus. I just love the fact that he is ultimate and absolute. This Lord Jesus is the Holy One. He is the true one. There's none truer. He holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one will shut. And what he shuts, no one will open. And so just uh, for your information, this goes back to Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. If you ever want to go there and look, these words are, are nearly word for word from Isaiah 22, 22. And what's happening there is the Lord is removing from his position in the kingdom uh, a, a ruler or, or an official. Uh, and he said, you're unworthy and I'm going to put someone else in your place. I'm going to lay on his shoulder, Isaiah says, the keys of David. What he opens, no one will shut. What he shuts, no one will open. And he says, and I'm this one who is found to be worthy in character. I'm going to drive in like a peg, a, a fastened peg, an immovable peg. And I'm going to hang the responsibility of all of this upon him. But even this worthy one, even this fastened peg will be cut off and there will be an end to him. There is only one ultimately who is worthy to hold the keys of David who is worthy to shut and no man opens and open and no man shuts. And ultimately, that hope could not be placed by Isaiah or anyone else in any human being, no matter how worthy, no matter how stable his character, it would all fail when we're resting upon me and you. It could only come through Messiah. The Lord Jesus is the ultimate here. He has authority. He has finality. What he says goes what he opens, no one shuts. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The synagogue of Satan, we've heard this before, uh, was probably a group of Jewish uh, religious people, uh, the traditional historic people of God in that town who were worshiping as they do at a certain place. And when these people learned the, the name of Jesus, these Christians, they went to the synagogue, they went to these people, uh, and, and they said, we want to be a part of you. Now that we know the Lord Jesus, we know the historic uh, people of God, we want to be, be in that. And they said, no. 
You're not a part of us. Belief in Jesus, we don't know this Jesus. Get out, you're not worthy to be called God's people. And so he says, I know you're very weak. I know that. I know that these people in the synagogue of Satan, they have shut you out. Uh, I'm aware of that. Behold, look what I'm going to do. I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Did this happen in real time in the first century? Probably not. This is probably prophetic of future things. Bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Wow. They'll learn that all along, not only were they the people of God, they were loved by God. Through Christ, we are loved by God. Don't miss that. Don't be so familiar with that that we forget it. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of final trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When I read this, I had no clue how we were going to preach it this morning. There's just so much in that. And, and, and the language has gotten a little bit more prophetic than the, the last churches, a little less practical. Uh, and I thought, how are we going to, how is this going to go? But I think if we look carefully, there are three sections to this. The Lord is telling them three things. And we learn here what, what it was about these Christians that brought such blessing and promise from the Lord. There are three qualities. Let's look at those together. The first is this. <clears throat> they knew who defined them. They knew who defined them. There were two forces, at least two forces, but there were two forces trying to tell the Philadelphian Christians who they were in the world. The first force was this, their own weakness, the condition of being weak or being few or being small in the culture. Uh, they suffered somehow, some way from having little what? Little power. And the Lord Jesus knows it. He sympathizes with it, with it. He mentions it to them. He says, I know that you have little strength, but you have held fast uh, to my word. Do you know this morning, it's okay for Christians to be weak. It is okay for us to be weak. We hate it. I know that. But if you find yourself in a weak condition this morning, I want you to know you're not out of line with all of Christianity before you. It is okay for Christians to suffer weakness. In fact, the Lord delights to use us in that condition. Are you sad today? Are you sorrowing today? Are you confused today? Do you not yet have the answers today? Are you suffering? Then I want you to know it is okay for Christians to be weak. In, in fact, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul has a situation where he is desperately weak. And here's what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness and insults and hardship and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, do you remember? When I am weak, then I am strong. We are a, a people 
of God's strength, not our own. And so if you're weak today, it's okay. And this church was weak in this moment. The Lord says, I know you're of little power. And the second power that was coming against them was the the message that they did not belong to God. They would be told by these, uh, these other Jewish people, the synagogue of Satan here, that they were outside of the people of God, that they couldn't know God because of what they believed about Jesus. My little brother Blaine uh, is seven years younger than me. He was su- such a cute little guy when he was born, and he's, he's the youngest in our family. And he got to be about 14. That meant I was about 21 years old. And uh, we had gone with my dad, uh, I think, no, with my grandparents up to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And all the way there, Blaine said, when I turn 16, I'm getting a Ford Mustang. I said, no, you're not, just like, a little, just like a big brother would. I said, Blaine, you have no clue how much money things cost. You're not getting a Ford Mustang. I can barely afford my little Ford Ranger pickup truck that I bought for $1,500. I mean, you, there's no way you're getting a Ford Mustang. He said, I'm saving up my money. I said, what money? You don't have a job. You don't have, you don't have money coming. What kind of, you're not going to get a Ford Mustang. Back in the back seat of that car. Uh, we just back and forth. And one night at a restaurant, it was right there by the, the seawall, kind of an Atlantic seawall uh, there in South Carolina. Uh, we were talking about it. He came out of that restaurant just fuming, red hot mad. And I was walking up on the, the seawall. And so it's not like a gradual beach. It's like deep right there. And I was walking on that seawall. And I finally said, there ain't no way you're getting a Mustang. And I saw murder in his eyes. <laughs> And I could see it click in his brain. He's on the seawall, right? And in a moment, I could see that contemplation happening. And I got down real quick from the Atlantic Ocean, right? I, did, I, I got down as fast as I could because I could see what was happening in his mind. And I got down there and he got in my face, this little guy, 14 to 21. He got in my face. He said, you don't tell me about my Mustang. <laughs> we know how that goes, don't we? These people in Philadelphia had been told they were little and weak and nothing. But in reality, they mattered to God, didn't they? They had been told that that they were outside of the people of God. There's a deep sense of pain that, that comes out when you read about these people, not only them, but others who were desperate to move toward God, an authentic, I mean, desire to get toward God. They have learned about Jesus, his son, his eternal plan of salvation. There's a longing to get as close to him, as deep into his people as they can, and they go to them, and they're shut out. There's pain there. This is not mechanical. This is not robotic people here. They are hurting, and they've been told, you're nothing to God. You're nothing in the culture, you have nothing, you have no power, and you're nothing to God. This is nonsense, and they held fast to his name. They got up in front of that culture. They got in in front of the, the Jewish people of that day. They got in their face, and they basically said, you don't tell me about my Jesus. I belong to him, and I know it. They knew who defined him. Two things happen here. They keep Jesus' word. They don't depart from the gospel, no matter what. I mean, there would have been great temptation to just get away from the gospel. Their families might have hated them, right? Uh, their, their workplaces might have shunned them. 
there was a great temptation to get away from the gospel. And look what Jesus does here. He says, I have opened a door that is unshuttable, right? What did the synagogue of Satan do to them? Shut the door, right? They just shut the door. He said, get out. You don't belong here. Jesus uh, very uh, appropriately, very poetically here says, hey, friends, hey, guys, those that I died for, those that I love, those that I've called to myself, I want to tell you something. I mean, do you see how personal this is? That Jesus says, I know they shut the door. Listen, I know how bad that hurt. I know your desire was right. I'm opening the door. The door to heaven, the door to salvation is open by the Lord Jesus in a very loving act here. There are voices that come around us all the time trying to tell us who we are and what we can be. And I want to ask you today, what voices are you listening to in your life? What voices are trying to shout down God in your life? Many of you here are suffering from discouragement, from defeat. That tells the story of who I am today. I just, I mean, that, that's the darkness that I'm under. Insult and embarrassment. Matthew, I'm embarrassed to live for the Lord Jesus. When I go out there, everybody thinks it's foolish. I mean, they're not necessarily angry at me. They just think I'm a fool for believing these things. In my high school, when everybody is hooking up with everybody and they see me living a life of purity, uh, Matthew, they think I'm a, I'm a fool. It's hard to live for Jesus sometimes. Are those the voices, the insult, the embarrassment that are defining your life today? Your sin, your past, I can't belong to Jesus. Every religious person I've ever talked to has Boom, shut the door on me because of my, my background, because of what I bring, the baggage that I bring into the table. I want to tell you today that Jesus saves, and it doesn't matter what you may have been told before. You bring your sin and repentance to Jesus, you turn toward him. What he opens, no man shuts. And what he shuts, no man opens. Are those the voices of your life today? Big temptations, big distractions, the patterns of a big world, all of this can distract us and discourage us. There will be a lot of forces in this life that want to define who you need to be. But I want you this morning, never forget who has the final say. The Lord Jesus has the final say. Let us live for him. They knew who defined them, and it wasn't easy. But secondly, they clung to God's promises. These folks really clung to God's promises. There are two short verses here, verses 10 and 11, that are filled with language about holding on. Look at this in verse 10. Because you have what? Kept my word. The word kept here uh, is an ancient Greek word that has to do with a fortress, uh, a, a protecting, like, some, like the king's household and the, the inner keep of a mighty fortress being protected there. Uh, that's what's happening here. You have kept my word you protected my word uh, about patient endurance and I will keep you a play on words I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world you've kept my word I'm going to keep you from going through the what we call the tribulation uh, a time of suffering uh, before and during the time the return of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, I'm going to keep you either from that or through it People really disagree mightily on the meaning of that word. Is he going to keep them from the tribulation out of it? Or is he going to keep them through the tribulation? 
That's another conversation for another day. But Jesus says, you've kept my word. I'm going to keep you. Hold on. He also tells him to, to, to keep holding on. Hold fast to what you have. You hold on to what you have so that no one will take hold of your reward, of your victory. It's all about holding on. It's all about clinging to. It's all about not letting go. You may have read with me just a few weeks ago on Friday, January 5th, an airplane took off, a 737 from Portland, got up to 16,000 feet. You know, that's 16, like a 1,600-story building. That's very high. I've never been on a building that high. I don't think they exist. But this airplane was up there. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the door, or actually a, a panel that was covering where a door should be. You know those big airplane doors? Huge doors that kind of curve out like this. The door just flew off the airplane. It was gone at 16,000 feet. They said everything was being sucked out, and then all of a sudden wind started coming in like crazy. A, a teenage boy was sitting there. It blew him back, ripped off his shirt, and sucked it out the door, gone. The lady sitting a couple of aisles over said she had no clue what was happening, but all of a sudden a teenage boy dropped out of the sky into the seat next to her. He had leapt over there, right? And you would too. I think I would too. I'm not even that leapable these days, but <laughs> you let that door come off. I'm going to do some leaping, you know. He leaped over there and grabbed hold of this lady, this stranger he never knew before, shirtless, hair blown back like crazy, and held on to her for dear life. These people are holding on to Jesus for dear life. He's all they have. And they turn to him and they find that he indeed is faithful against all odds, with all the, the wind of that culture blowing against them, with all the hardship that faith in Christ was just pouring out on them. They held to Jesus. They kept his word about what? About patient endurance. And it takes endurance to go through these types of things. The Lord Jesus is who they clung to. They clung to God's promises. What are you clinging to most tightly in your life today? The question can be answered this way. What do you find that the arms of your life are most tightly wrapped around? What do you give most of your time and energy, money, focus, attention, joy? Where do you get your most happiness? Where are you most fulfilled? Look around. We're all holding on to something. And this church is praised even by the Lord Jesus for holding on to his word and for not letting go to what he had given to them. Whatever you're clinging to today, I, I hope you'll turn to the one who sustains you fully. The one thing that promises permanence in your life is nothing other than the Lord Jesus. He is stable. He's secure. He is the one who has foundations. He holds truth and victory. And the promises of God through Jesus Christ alone. Is there something today you need to turn away from? Is there something that you're holding on too tightly to? And you need to turn to Jesus. I urge you to do that today. Hold on to him and follow him. But lastly, this church, we notice, live for what lasts. They live for what lasts. The Lord Jesus finally assures the Philadelphian Christians, of the permanence of his promises to them. 
In verse 12, the one who conquers, what's he going to do? He's going to make him a pillar in the house of his God. What had the, the, the Jewish people of that day done? They said, you can't even come to the house of God. He said, oh, you come to me, I'm going to make you a permanent fixture in the house of my God. I'm going to build you of that which never fades. You'll be a pillar in the house of my God. And I'm going to write upon you what? The name of my God. Wonder which name that was. Wonder if that's a name that we know from Scripture. Wonder if it was Yahweh God. I'm going to write, he's going to write upon them. He's going to write it there on them. The name of his God. And the name of the city of his God. The new Jerusalem which comes from heaven from God. He's going to write their citizenship. How do we know that we belong there? When the world says we're weak, when the, when the religious people say we don't belong, how do we know we belong to you, Jesus? I'm going to write the name of that city right up on you. You never go out of it. This is a place that you are a full citizen of. And he's going to write his very own new name upon them. This is a name that I don't think we do know yet. The Bible says that in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted the Lord Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is, above ever, ever, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, in exalting the Lord Jesus from his, from his deathbed, from his resurrected state to his reigning condition forevermore has bestowed upon him a new name that I don't think we know that name yet, but whatever it is, it establishes him as the final authority forever. He's going to do something permanent. And they were living for what lasts. This weakness would pass away. It would pass away. This hardship would pass away. The sufferings of this life would pass away. The other things that they might have wanted to reach out for to replace the Lord in their lives, those were going to pass away. But these things last. I was in seventh grade in Eastridge Middle School in my hometown. I was a weird middle schooler. And I know that surprises y'all. But I was awkward, chunky. I know that surprises you too. I was chunky. And awkward, in between hairstyles, you know, how that goes in middle school. You don't really know yourself. I mean, I was just an awkward, odd kid. And one day in Miss Brock's class, Tennessee history, Tennessee history with Miss Brock. In Miss Brock's class, a girl named Jennifer McCauley, two other girls, and I can't remember who they were now, were sitting in a, we had a little group table, and they decided they want to draw on my arms with sharpies and I let them do it and they I sat there in this downtime in class or whatever and they drew all over my arms with sharpie markers and at the end of the class Miss Brock saw it and was just mortified that this had happened I mean she went what I thought was way overreaction with this and she dragged us all to the what we then called the vice principal's office we went to the vice principal's office and got in trouble and had to call my mom and all the girls had to write uh, a, an apology note to my mom. It was a, a, a big deal. Miss Brock wrote down a recipe of how to get off marker off of a boy's arm. And so she wrote this down and, and gave it to my mom. She was so embarrassed. And my mom said, well, Matthew, why did, why did you do this? You know, I said, 
Mom, when you're a kid like me in middle school and a girl wants to ride on your arms, you say yes, you know? <laughs> if a girl wants to have anything to do with you, you just say yes, you know? <laughs> but you can't see that anymore, right? <laughs> right? It's not on there anymore. It faded away, even though a Sharpie is what? A permanent marker. I mean, even though they didn't hold back, and they, they, I mean, they got me good, right? Uh, it's just not there anymore. And the things of life that these Philadelphians would have been tempted to say, oh, I wish I just had the affluence, the, the, the financial, no, I don't need to be rich, God. Just let me have a little bit of financial freedom, Lord. If I could just gain a little bit of this, and I know I'm going to have to compromise a little bit. I know I'm going to have to shut up about Jesus. I know I'm going to have to tell my family I'm, I'm not of that anymore. If I could only get this, God, those things many times seem like permanent to us. They seem like permanent freedom, permanent joy, permanent blessing, but they are all falling away they are transient moving through they are a vapor in our lives Jesus has the things that last he is the only one who is in fact a permanent savior so many of the things we are tempted to live our lives for in this world they're fleeting and they're gone and I want you to know young people today college students today everybody in between I want you all to know today that it is okay to set your eyes Christward, to be living for what he has promised next, those things that remain that are eternal, to go for those even when it costs you things in this life. It is okay. They lived for what lasted in their life, and it made all the difference. Jesus writes to this church a letter no criticism, only blessing, only praise. He says to them, listen, you hold fast to me. I was looking, you know, I don't follow sports much, but I saw an article that interested me. An NBC interview happened on the field after a big game uh, with the Houston Texans the other day. I don't know that team much, but they had played a game, and they've got a, a kind of a breakout rookie quarterback. I've written down his name, C.J. Stroud. C.J. Stroud, there it is. Rookie quarterback, and he has just exceeded all expectations. And in this particular game, he led them to an incredible surprise victory over the other team. And on the field afterwards, a, a, a reporter came up to him, and she just asked him, how does it feel? And he said, listen. Before I say anything, here's, here's a quote from him. I've got it right here. First of all, I just want to give all glory and praise to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he said, and being in this city for so long, for so little time, I'm just blown away how loving people have been to me. Something like that. It got on air, and here's what happened. She said, how does it feel and he said, being in this city for such a little time, I'm blown away by how people have loved me. What'd they do? They cut it out, right? NBC's taking a lot of heat over this 
They cut out the whole, his whole initial opening statement, edited it cleverly, focused in on his face. I didn't want to put that in there about the Lord. In the end, the statement has gotten far more attention than it would have otherwise uh, because of, I guess you might say, the controversy. We live in a world, the Philadelphians live in a world where there are forces who want to edit Christ out of our lives. But don't you edit him out. Don't you do their work for them. Yes, they're going to do that. That's what we expect from a fallen world, from broken people uh, who are outside of Christ for now. That's what we expect. But don't let us, oh God, don't let us make their work easy for them. Don't edit that out. So many Christians are just lunging And I'm telling you, lunging after all the world has to offer. They're not even ashamed of it. We're not not even ashamed of it anymore. As we just lust and long for all that the world has to attract our eyes when Jesus is here calling us to live for him. And it makes all the difference. Not only will you be praised by the Lord Jesus for living a life that way as these were, but listen, his power and blessings will flow in unimaginable ways right into your very being. Don't go that way. Don't be a worldly Christian. Don't be the church right before this one. You look at these Philadelphians. You live for what lasts. You hold on to the Savior you keep following Jesus. Let me pray for us.